Hi everyone, you're listening to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and this is episode 25. Our guest today is Tejinder Singh, the frontman of the legendary British band Corner Shop. It, this is very exciting. Corner Shop is such a special band. They're truly one of a kind. Corner Shop is a band that knew where they came from, they knew what was going on around them, and they knew what they wanted to say. Keep in mind that this was during a time and place where a South Asian having any platform was just a crazy unimaginable thing these guys are truly pioneers so if you don't know corner shop please do yourself a favor and check them out before we get started i just want to mention that if you like this podcast and you like the brown history instagram account and you want to help out you want to support it then just visit www.brownhistorypodcast.com honestly there's so much effort so much hard work and time and energy that goes behind all this and whatever you provide, whatever you give will go a long, long way. There's so many ways to help out. You can shop, you can donate, you can become a patron. So thanks for listening and let's get started. Here we go. Uh, you are, yes. Wow, it is a honor. Oh, thank you. Um, awesome. Uh, so Corner Shop has been around for a very long time. And, you know, let's just go back to the beginning let's 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 go start with your parents you know when did your parents come to the uk and what did they do yeah my well my dad was a headmaster in india and he decided to come to england because um jobs were being offered in england um but when he came here he realized he had to re-educate himself to the english systems and um he also did a lot of other jobs to be able to afford his education. So he was a bus conductor. He did taxis. He did a lot of different, uh, a lot of different, uh, he worked at a petrol station. Um, this was the 1980s? Well, that was from the 60s. And actually through the, when things got a bit tighter in the 80s, he was then doing double job, jobs again. Mm-hmm. Um so that was the late 60s that he, that he had to re-educate himself. Then he became a teacher again. And um, my mother then came over um, and she, she was educated uh, in India, but she actually only did manual work in, in England. She worked at a factory. Yeah, yeah. That must have been tough. It was tough um, for her, and but it was also a community for her. So when they weren't working, because there's a lot of times where, because we, we were from a very industrial place, so they'd be working, there'd be a cluster of uh, Asian ladies working in, in one factory, and if that folded, then they would get the word that another factory needed them. And so they would move from factory to factory. And so they at least had like-minded uh, people around them that were going through the same experience. So I think that's what ha- kept them going. Uh, but the work was hard. It was manual. It was fighting metal, as they called it. And um, lots of forges, lots of heat, lots of... Uh, in the area was was a bit like Detroit. It was, it's called, in the Midlands, it was called the, the Black Country because of all the smoke and the furnaces. and That's what the Black Country is. Yes. Growing up, were you involved in the Indian community? 
Yes, a lot. Um, because the small village that we had um, suddenly decided to get its own temple, its own godra, which was in an ex-snooker hall. And um, that became a focus for the community. And um, so that was a regular thing for us. And that's where I got into recording cassettes and obviously helping out in the kitchen and helping out everywhere else. My dad was a treasurer and he was also the stage manager. So um, that, that was a regular thing. Well, were your parents okay with you focusing on music instead of a nine to five job? Well, I, I never actually went for music. I, um, my degree was in business information technology. Um, I mean, I, I've got sons now and I've, I'm very offended that they would do whatever they do in front of me. And uh, we always kept our parents away from the harm of, uh, of what we did. Not that we did anything bad, um, but we always respected that um, they didn't want to see anything that they wouldn't uh, appreciate. Um, and that's not the case today. Tale of woe in itself. But um, they never, I mean, if it, it was quite a strict sort of community. If people were, for instance, if, if we, we started to dress differently to other people um, in, in, the, in the few years towards the end. And that was very much scorned upon. And that was probably the first biggest sort of uh, realization that uh, that there were that there were rules and uh, well structure and um, uh, and nonsense as far as far as we were concerned. <laughs> Did you in that environment at that time? I mean, I've heard stories and, and I've read a lot about the racism and the hostile environment that the UK was. I mean, still is somewhat, but it was a lot worse and more violent back then. Did you experience that? Did you witness that? Yes, we, we did witness it. We, we grew up with it. We didn't actually... That was as, as much as the, the community of the Asians that you were with. You didn't realise till a little further on that you don't have to live like that. Uh, you don't have to live with other people um, dictating your dress sense. And equally, you don't have to live with white people dictating what you should be doing and you shouldn't be doing. So freedom, I think, is the word that one was lurching for a few years before I left uh, Wolverhampton, the place where I was born. Um, and then when I did leave the place, then freedom was very much high on the agenda. We went to Preston Polytechnic, which was um, a lower form of university. Um, and that was in Lancashire. Um, and then I moved after studying. Well, after studying, I spent a year on the union at uh, Lancashire Polytechnic. And... Um, I think it had got university status by then, after I'd left. Um, and then I went to Leicester to live with my brother. But we'd formed in about... Uh, well, I'd got lots of racist shit um, at, uh, when I was an ENTS officer, when I used to put on the events for the union. And whereas in Wolverhampton, you, you, you'd have the racism that was 
quite uh, plain and physical and um, um, and everyday. There it was, well, it was unexpected. It was, a, it was an institution of higher education. You wouldn't expect it for a start. And when it did come, it was very conniving, very underhand and uh, very, very hidden. And, um, and therefore a little taste to, to what the real world was, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And did you feel when you were performing that you were, I guess, an outsider or that you didn't belong in this kind of industry? Because I don't think there were a lot of Indians at that time playing music in the, in the UK. You know, those sort of things only sort of come to light now. It's a bit like the freedom thing. You just do it. You don't, if you, if you thought about that or you, you were, um, hemmed in by that, then you wouldn't do those sort of things. Um, if you even thought about the music industry full stop, forget um, the the boundaries uh, to it, then you wouldn't, you would not, uh, you'd just give up. So we never really thought about that. We only thought about uh, what we were doing, how much we enjoyed it, how much, certainly at the start, we thought we were progressing because we weren't musicians as such at all, but we were ideas and ideas where we found that other people didn't have them. <laughs> so we, we had something other people didn't have. They could play the fretboard backwards. How did you know you were good? Like, when did you know that you have something here? Um, we never necessarily thought that we were good. We just thought that we were different. That was really the starting point of it. Um, and I think that's always been the case. We've never thought we were good. We're just, uh, we're different. We've got something to prove. We've still got ideas, so we persevere. So I think that's what we carried us on from, from the start and to the next album and the next and the next, to where we are now, speaking to you. So when you were making music, you were just making music, but there was a, I don't know if there if it was always political, but there was a turning point when things get more political. I'm referring to the time when Morrissey of the Smiths waved a flag at some music festival, and there's a photo of you burning his photo. Yeah, well, I think really the the politics certainly came and was much more focused. It okay. became more focused when when I got the the racist discrimination from from my um educated peers uh getting three votes no confidence in the first two weeks is not very good especially when the first two weeks uh the most important <laughs> time of uh, of of most people's uh, introduction to uh, to a university um the morrissey thing was something that just happened um that uh, we we did not because of that gig. Th- that gig was where other people might have seen him him draped in a in a Union Jack. We never saw that gig. Mm-hmm. Um, ours was much more wide ranging, and uh, in terms of you see nowadays, you could look at Morrison and just say he's racist because his badge is of a far right uh, British organisation. Yeah. 
Um, but we didn't have a badge in those days. And so you had to put all these things together. You had to put the artwork together, the imagery, the Union Jack, the lyrics, the past lyrics. Um, the fact that he wasn't, that he talked about so many great issues such as vegetarianism. On the other hand, he also uh, refused to put a story straight if it was about um, racism. His hatred of certain types of music was quite pronounced. Um, so those were things that um, that we felt uh, as individuals, also individuals that quite like the Smiths. Um, <clears throat> and so were quite disappointed that a, a group that could be so influential uh, were starting to be so influential in a very derogatory, racist way, which was something that we'd been born with and we, we uh, thought we were moving away from that. So it was, it was loaded with a lot of issues um, and it, it was done as far as we were concerned with, with a lot of integrity and, and, um, and, and so we, we've always, we've never recoiled from it. We've always thought that it was, it was, it was the right thing to do, especially at that time, um, reiterating some of what you said earlier at that time, racism was coming up again and people were getting beaten up in the streets and being killed quite frankly. So as well as going on to into marshes in, in, in the East end of London, um, we we saw uh, what what Morrissey was doing, so it it didn't sit very well with us. Mm-hmm. So, so then in in nineties you released your first EP, the days of Ford Cortina, and what I was mm-hmm. impressed to he- read about was that the vinyl color was curry colored. Oh yes, that's amazing. <laughs> um, yes, yeah. Well, it it is amazing. Unfortunately. In those days, when you had coloured plastic uh, in vinyl records, it's often warped, or maybe it's just the heat. It was just too much curried heat that uh, made it warp. Um, so some of the pressings weren't weren't brilliant. But um, yeah, we uh, we the name Corn Shop um, was a reference to. Uh, the fact that a lot of Asians were seen as uh, n- no good for anything other than running a corner shop. And so those were some of the elements that we sort of um, prodded fun at as well. How was the reaction to your EP? Um, well, by then, things, by the time we'd released our first um, EP, Things were things were pretty vibrant for us. We'd we'd signed to Ouija Records, which was uh, a label that were putting out a lot of the Riot Girl uh, songs groups in England, and um, so that was political in itself. So it was very vibrant. Lots of political stuff going on. Lots of TV. Lots of. Um, Lots of interviews and lots of uh, lots of great discussion. It was very political. It was good. It's sort of punk, I think, um, on a part of punk. And we, I always thought that we were a bit like um, like the Rasters, like like um, reggae, because punk uh, took re- punk and reggae. Sorry, yeah, punk and reggae got on and. Uh, us and the Riot Girls got on 
and um, so it was in, in that way, it, it had its affinity. I think you toured Europe with uh, Oasis. That was much later on. That was uh, that was no, actually, that was America. Yeah, <laughs> uh, ninety. That was ninety-eight. Ninety-eight. How was that? That was an amazing experience. How was he? Or how was he, they? They. Uh, no, it was it was excellent. Um, well, we'd met Noel just before we'd left, and we really got on with him. That was backstage. I think that was a. I think that was at Beck show, but I'm not too sure. And um, we knew that we, we got on with him. And then when we met the rest of them, we knew that we could get on with them as well. And we did. We got on with them. We got on with their crew. And we were very looked at, well, well looked after. And we were, yeah, it was a great tour. Really good. And um, big arenas. It was, yeah, it was, it was different and uh, and lovely we got on with them really well when we'd finished touring we still com- kept communication with them and um some of their roadies then started working for us and uh we we had uh Quigsy, the bass player play play us on a song for us and noel did uh, guitars on track called spectral mornings and that w- that was on an album that was out in 2002. So I think that was about the fourth or fifth album. So we've skipped quite uh, quite far. But um, um, yeah, it was a lovely, lovely uh, tour. We Because we were different musically, uh, we got on. There was no clashes at all. Um, and also, I mean, I'd spent a year in Manchester myself. Me and Ben had studied in Lancashire, which is right near Manchester, between Manchester and Liverpool, actually, uh, Preston was. So we knew those sort of characters, and they are a very different kind of uh, sort of person. The Northerners are very down-to-earth, and um, they can, well, they say what they mean, and uh, it, it can can get a bit uh, hot. But uh, we we all got on with each other. Nineteen eighty seven is when you released uh, your album "When I Was Born for the Seventh Time," and that really put you on the map. And it's 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 a great album. How did that come about? That album. What was the process like to make that album? Well, I would say actually the previous album, uh, "Woman's Got to Have It," um, with tracks like "Just Under Share." got us signed to into America on David Byrne's label, the Walkabot. Um, that then opened up us going to America and touring there. And we toured there a few times, quite a few times before, before uh, the Oasis tour. Um, and so when it came to that album, everything was sort of uh, in flow. The touring was good. Um, and, I think because we had a few singles out beforehand, but the soul was out before when I was born for the seventh time and it was on it. Um, there were quite a few singles that were just said to us, well, things are going really well and um, the response was getting better and better. So we went into the studio to record when I was born for the seventh time with a great, um, and in a great enthusiasm to, uh, to, to, 
continue doing what the hell we wanted. Um, we'd already met uh, Alan Ginsberg in New York and recorded his vocal, which ended up on the album. Um, we'd done quite a f- I took quite a few samples of spoken word and field sort of recordings when I was in America. So everything was um, positive. We used Dan the Automator. We did actually used him on our side project, uh, Dan the Automator. And we were the first group to use, English group to use him. And uh, we got him over to do uh, a, a production on a few tracks, uh, three tracks. And um, and that gave it a, a different bent as well, which was very good. And um, so, yeah, we were, uh, we, we, we really enjoyed that album. It was actually also an album where we first used a, a really good top-notch London studio. Um, and that was enjoyable as well. And we still used our old studio in Preston, which we continue to, which we've always continued to go back to. How did you get uh, Yoko Ono to work to work in your album? Because it says Yoko Ono. Well, no, we we had to get permission from Yoko and Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney to use uh, to to do a version of Norwegian Wood because it was done in Punjabi. I.e., therefore, seen as a, a vast um, variation difference to, to how it was first recorded so we needed their permission to do but we'd met Sean Lennon in uh, New York and he'd help, helped us uh, secure that as well but it it was quite tense that um, w- that we had to wait uh, for uh, what we knew was a very great uh, end to, to, to an album so um, there were still some stressful parts but essentially it was an album that we'd record a few tracks and get them onto um, tapes and send them to the record label at the time. And they would give it, uh, they would give it rounds of applause. They'd stand up and give it rounds of applause. That's not what is normally done in, uh, in an English office. That's what sort of happens in, in Japanese offices. So, we we everything was full throttle. Everything was positive, and we knew we were onto onto something really good, and we were. And the album in America did really well. Um, so we were pretty much riding high, and then we had the. Uh, I mean, America was, at the time anyway was a beast where you had to keep on going over and develop and work in different areas and different markets and wait for different radios to take it on board and everything built up over a matter of, of years. Um, it, and um, that's what was happening with, with the album. And then the single uh, got, um, Brimful of Asher got remixed. Um, we were actually in America when that happened, though we'd, we'd given, we, we liked um, Norman Cook and uh, we knew that it was going to be coming. And when it did come, we knew that it was going to be massive. And in a way, that sort of upset the apple cart of, of what we were doing with the album, which was a bit unfortunate. What do you mean? Well, if the album had carried on, there would have been a different way forward for the group. We would have had to maybe persevere a bit longer, but maybe that would have bore more fruit than having the apple cart tipple over onto one wheel, which was uh, the brimful wheel. 
It right. gave a lot of focus to that remix. And in a way, it was a focus for, for a lot of people to just easily say, well, it's not exactly them. It's another group. So they didn't have to give us the credit that, uh, that we th- felt we'd uh, put into the group over the years. I see. Because we had, we were, we were going back to England where we'd found it a difficult. Europe was great for us. Europe was much more open. Uh, when we got to America, we were blown over. We couldn't believe how many, because all of the cobwebs that we'd had from the upbringing, from the uh, the culture that we'd been brought up with, had gone. And we were shocked that America was not like what we'd thought. We thought America was very backward and um, it, we were going to have a rough time. It was very much the opposite. They were very much more forward thinking, uh, certain sectors of, of the American uh, people, and they took us to heart. So we were, uh, we were very lucky and uh, we appreciated that. Whereas England is, has always been difficult. It's always, we've always had to go back to square one you've reached kind of like this high point and you're riding high. How did you process the fame that you were getting now? And was your fan base now a lot more Indian or was it a lot more white? Our fan base has never really been Indian. It's probably more Indian now. Yeah. Through, um, through people like yourself (laughs) pushing it because, uh, we did sort of glide through the earlier parts of it, but if you, uh, were on a stage and you were Indian um, and then you weren't singing in, in English, that was that was considered uh, quite rude. <laughs> um, and if you had a guitar, that was it was considered that you you might you might get a good kick in. And a good punching. Nowadays, people think, "Well, that that didn't happen. That wouldn't have happened. Surely not." But it did. People didn't like Asian people being on a stage with a guitar, whether they were white, and especially if they were brown. Nowadays, it's considered uh, de rigueur. You have to have a brown person on a stage, but. Uh, <laughs> Then it wasn't, and we got we got into scrapes uh, along the way because of that. Um, and a- Asian people have have never really they didn't take to us until Brimfall. That's that's the song that has references for them, even though the song I mean our first song has reference with to Nazareth for the Ali Khan and other things, but uh, that's the first song they. Uh, understood uh, in terms of references that that uh, work for them but um no it's uh, it was it was very um very difficult there was this band that came from the uk i think before you guys and it was called alien culture and i was and there were there were pakistanis and indians and I was reading about their their interviews and they were saying that how like that they as they were performing there was also racism from white people but they also had a lot of hate from their own community. Did you feel a lot of oppression from your community? Oh yeah, they wanted to kill you if they could get their hands on you. Like was it jealousy or was it just you were trying to were you or is it because you were creating noise and you were bringing attention to the community and that was only yeah. going to cause harm? 
No, it was through a very simple saying um, that, 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 that that person is a soul that's gone astray. And that's how Asians that were doing something different were considered in those times. And that was the phrase, souls that had gone astray. There's no help in them. They've gone. And wow. basically saying that they've, they've left the community. So there was, it, no, it wasn't anything to do with jealousy. It was just, uh, it was a hatred. There's a hatred that someone was, uh, of their colour was doing something uh, that they considered thirsty. That's fascinating. So now you, you're in the stage where you've, you've kind of established yourself and now you want to create another album. So in 2002, you released Hand Cream for a Generation and you had uh, Noah Gallagher uh, as a guitarist. How did he come board? How did he get on? And how was the process of making this album once after you've ta- established yourself? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, Noel actually asked to play on stage with us when we were in America because uh, one of our songs, uh, Jalunda Share, doesn't have bass on it as such, doesn't have bass guitar, it has electric uh, keyboard uh, bottom end, but uh, no bass. So he used to come on and play that at most shows. Um, and that's, that's a song with totally uh, Asian lyrics. Um, so the song that he we then asked him to play on was uh, also with Asian lyrics. So we thought of him because he played bass on the other one. This time he played guitars and he not only played uh, guitar, he played loads of guitars and did lots of different takes and used lots of different um, pedals and effects and uh, really got into it. I mean, he could have, could have just come in and just done the one thing and, and gone. But he was there for quite a few hours and then we went to the pub after that. Um, and so we were very happy that um, that he, he'd really um, committed himself to, uh, to to doing the track rather than just playing on it. And that was that. Um, but really, you're right. We 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 established ourselves with when I was born for the seventh time. We really had to pull out a hell of a lot of stops to do the next album because uh, we thought we had a better album in us. We thought that uh, things were going well and things would carry on. Um, so we put a lot of effort into it, and we 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 didn't want it to fail. We wanted to do an album that was better than when I was born for the seventh time. I think we achieved that. Unfortunately. It didn't uh, sell as good as uh, when I was born for the seventh time. Um, but I think we, we did come out with an album that was better um, and an album that uh, that still was quite adventurous uh, with Otis Clay helping uh, do the introduction on the first track, Heavy Soup, with Gwigsy doing the bass, Gwigsy from Oasis doing the bass on uh, Lessons Learned from Rocky 1 to Rocky 3 that was about the music industry. Um, and then with songs that uh, like music for uh, Motion 11 was like a reggae song uh, with proper reggae um, vocals from from, uh, friends of of ours and Gwigs's it didn't stop the the, the idea still kept on going and um, we 
we we we did what we thought was a very compelling album but um it also took a bit of time to before it came out it was actually done in 2001 but we waited a year to put it out um why'd you wait a year um the record label wanted to wait to uh, get things get the get the uh, marketing around it right and also to get america more in line with the with the release uh, as it came out in britain um so that sort of it, it did did okay and it's still doing okay but it didn't do as well as uh, the, the previous album were you heartbroken um Yes, I was actually. Yeah. And then we went on tour with that album. We uh, we put a lot of uh, effort into it and it wasn't reciprocated by the record label. Um, so we parted ways with that record label. How did your parents take in all the success that you were achieving? Well, actually, my mother had passed away in 96. I'm um, sorry to hear that. Sleep, that's okay. Sleep on the left side. We actually, it's, it's about my mother. Um, and it's about birth and rebirth and loss and planets. Um, and my father actually passed away in 2001. So um, there wasn't, my, my mother, my auntie told my mother that she, she loved my voice, which made my mother uh, very happy. So uh, it was a very simple thing, but that, that's uh, that's about all I can remember of my mother uh, and my musical career. My father, I think, was just happy that uh, I was getting on, and uh, other people that he knew were were telling him how well his son was doing. So that that was enough uh, happiness for him, but. Um, they, they wouldn't have been the sort of parents that would that would, you know, come out on the road with you. Uh, no, I understand. <laughs> hang, hang about backstage. Yeah. Um, they uh, they were very simple people, and um, I think they were just happy that um, that my life was 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 easier than probably what what they thought it would be because um, a son who's done what I'm do what I did um, at that age uh, they must have thinking about it now as a father now as I do as I did as I've already said um, is uh, it must have been very worrying for them for yeah. their to finish his education then decide to continue and uh, do entertainment organize the entertainment and uh, and then put himself in arms way because they knew the, all the racism and the threats that I'd got. Um, he became an open target. Um, well, yes. Uh, and from, from <laughs> lots of different sectors of, uh, yeah, because there'd be the security that were uh, offended there was the um, the committee that had never seen a black person in that position and didn't want one, um, and um, but then there was also the uh, the electorate and the students, and they did want me, and we I got re-elected, and then and next year, and then I told them to stuff that and got got the whole committee 
elected in a very different vein. So there was a lot of, it was a wonderful year. It was very stressful. It was a, it was a whirlwind of, uh, of uh, an introduction in, in, into the, the world, big wide world, especially the music industry world, because that's full of arseholes. Yeah. You, you have children. I do have children. How old are they? Uh, one's 20 and the other's 15. Do they have your musical acumen? I haven't got any musical acumen. <laughs> um, but they have. You know, uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> well, my youngest son is just starting to do promoting shows, actually. Um, and he's more into... Uh, oh, God beats per minute and uh, and drum and bass and all the different genres that come with that and he created a genre called racket which is doing quite well in london at the moment so that's a source of pride mm-hmm. um but there's also a lot of uh, there's a lot to him which is uh, just as worrying as i was if not more and the other one's a lot more level-headed, and uh, he's he's a very good pianist, and uh, uh, he's a lot more laid back, and uh, into his art, and uh, yeah. Did you have to explain all the references in your songs? You know, bring full bring full of Asha. Did you have to explain who Asha was and and what she meant to a lot of people back then? I've never personally explained it. I think they've read things about it and their mothers. I mean, I met their mom quite early on, actually. I think, um, I think we met, she was a, um, she was studying an an MA in London and she was also a journalist for a Parisian uh, magazine, music magazine. And that's how we met. And um, and then we, I asked her if she'd come with us to France wow. uh, to be uh, our tour manager for because uh, we were there for a few weeks. And uh, and we we started seeing each other there. And then I moved to London. Um, so really, um, we've we've been together uh, right from the start. And. Um, I'm sure they they may from time to time have spoken to their mom about it, but ultimately they keep uh, they they keep away from it. Uh, and every now and then, some of their friends will will tell them that they've heard a, an album or or uh, or that their father likes it or whatever, or teachers as well. <laughs> so every now and then, there's a little point back to uh, to 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 the group, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's a bit like that on, on the road I live, actually. We've got quite a lot. We've got um, the chap from Cast. Thurston Moore just lives around the corner. Um, we got, uh, yeah, there's quite a few people in groups who probably have the same problem I have. What do you think of the music that's being played these days? I don't. I don't. You don't like it? I don't think about it. You don't think about it. That just, that's just... <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I guess that's fair enough. No, I, well, with regards to what my son listens to, I think it's music without um, without any brain. 
um, because there's no vocals to it. And so you have to have something else that offsets that, uh, th that fills in where the vocals are and whether that's drink or whether that's something harder. It's, um, it's a bit of a shame to have to do that. Uh, but that's, that's what kids that's what do. That's what it is. Yeah. And they're more than welcome to it. Um, I know in your day, it w it's really tough for any, uh, anybody, a person of color to do anything, but it's still, but in this generation, it's still somewhat difficult, not as much as it was back then. Do you have any advice or uh, any tips that you would like to give to anybody listening who wants, who's trying to do something, but it's very difficult because it's an industry dominated by white people? Well, I think I'll go back to what I said before about about the industry. If you think of it for what it is, it ain't going to serve you. If you think of it for what you want it to be, then you're going to serve yourself. And uh, the, there's there's no other way around it. You will only be caught up in the frustrations of trying to change it without actually changing it. Um, that that's I, I try not to give any advice, really, um, over the years because... Um, because mine has been such a higgledy-piggledy sort of introduction to, uh, to, to where we are now. And um, I don't think you're going to do that unless you really want to do it. Um, you, you'll just be put off. There are, there are a lot of people in this generation that are, that are discovering your music day by day. And, and they look at your music. Even when I found your music, you did such a good job of, of creating something that you know, looks onto the future, but also doesn't forget, you know, one's roots and one's cultural identity. And you kind of find this perfect combination with not just like, it sounds good, but there's like a, a sort of a respectful element to it, you know, and, and not many people have done that in the past and not people are doing it now either. So you're seen as a, as a pioneer, as a, as a role model. So what you say, I think, I know you don't want to give advice or anything, but what you say is very, very important, even to me, to and to a lot of other people. So that's why I'm asking. Well, you know, uh, what you just said is so nice that um, <laughs> that's it's, it's lovely, you know. And if my dad heard half of that, um, he he would uh, he would have loved that as a as a summary. That's really nice. Um, and I think, I mean, I don't really think that much about it, but when you just mentioned that about the past and the future, I think it is, uh, it, it is, even though I'm not a practicing Sikh, it, it is from those days of, uh, of going to the temple and, uh, and, and the Asian community that sort of sets that, uh, set that in store because you did have to look you, you did have to look around and think well i can't do that because it wouldn't be acceptable nowadays people don't have those limits and maybe that's a great thing uh, they don't have to have those limits at all well it is a great thing what am i saying it is a great thing but in those days you did have limits and you had to look around and you couldn't uh, you couldn't um you, you weren't totally free to do what you wanted to do. You had to be very careful about it. I think, I think the only thing I've been very open about and uh, a little too carefree is, is the industry. 
um, because I don't have that much love for it. And um, I don't think my father would like the swearing that I've put put uh, in its direction. But um, yeah, we obviously it's not an intentional thing. To, no one could have intended to do um, the music that we've done and hope that it will it sits in a certain way in the future. But it ha does seem to have sat in, in in a nice way. And I think even um, the, uh, well, I think it's right in terms of where we are in, in terms of the albums. After that, leaving that label that I said we'd left, yeah. uh, we then went to Rough Trade Records uh, and we knew Jeff at Rough Trade, um, who ironically <laughs> put all the early Smiths uh, albums out. Um, and we we did um, a few singles, and one of them was the Bubbly Core uh, single. And we got the album ready, but Rough Trade then went into bed with our old label, so we decided to part ways, which was very unfortunate. Yeah. Because Jeff is very, uh, very similar in terms of uh, in terms of what he likes in terms of music and in terms of politics and he actually used to live <laughs> he used to live uh, he was born in Stoke Newton uh, which is where I live uh, now so there's a lot of similarities and we would have really got on well with uh, Jeff had we we'd carried on um, but yeah so the bubbly core um, stuff Topknot and Natch came out around that time. Yeah, uh, she sings totally in Punjabi. She was actually from Preston, where we were, where we'd studied, and uh, I'd met her once in Preston. But we we were then reintroduced by a taxi driver friend of mine. Um, How did and, that song come about, Natch? Because it's very different from your other stuff. Yeah, well, I think part of us has been like being a, a band and playing live instruments, and um, and then the other part has been uh, using technology and turntablism and uh, other sort of more experimental studio sort of uh, techniques, and that was a, a mixture of 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 all of those again, but then working with with uh, with Bubbly or Kieran is a is a birth name um and the first song i think we did was natch and she liked it and her kids liked it and so that was all very good and then the, the second song was top knot which i spent about three months on doing the music and when she heard it she was horrified <laughs> uh you know when people get dizzy because you told them something and they, they just uh turn to yeah, all their life drains out of them. That's how she felt when she first heard it. Um, because it, for a lady who had... You see, the thing is, she's about my age. She's from Preston. She would have crossed me going to Preston, and she went to London. She had an arranged marriage. She'd done all the things that uh, were probably in store for me. An arranged marriage, staying in the community, and... Uh, sticking to your st sticking to your culture she'd done those things whereas i'd gone the other way and i'd moved away from that culture right. and then with that with natch we tried to meld in the middle and 
she she couldn't take the music because she thought it was too far away from uh, where uh, where her vocals were musically. She said the music had to all be done again, which was quite devastating to me. And then it was her children that persuaded her that it, that it was okay. And uh, so that, yeah, so nothing's without its problems. And, uh, and I think after that, that was good in a way, because after that she trusted me on all the other stuff. And certainly the Bubbly album is is very varied in uh, the different types of music that are put, put to her vocals. What was the reception for Natch? People loved it. Uh, well, the weird thing is that they not only loved it, but they're loving it, and it's still getting. yeah. I just and discovered not- it this week, and it's like wow. Oh, <laughs> well, we're having that. Re- we never got it out on vinyl. We only put it out uh, as a CD, and uh, that's at the end of the year we're going to have that out on vinyl. It's just carried on. It's been one of those things that has just laid in India and not a lot of people knew about it. And then it moved. Now it's starting to move and people, people are getting to know it. So um, yeah, it's a good thing. It's, uh, it's not stopped. I feel like your album, your music is going to have a huge comeback soon. You know, the new generation is going to discover it and they're going to just, uh, they're just going to bring it back. It's going to go like viral. Oh, well, I uh, hope so. <laughs> Well, I, you know, like like with um, like with as I say, it's a dormant thing in India, and it's sort of built slowly. I, I, I it's it's a romantic thing. It's <laughs> it's what films are made about. Yeah. <laughs> but it would be lovely if if that was the case, because we think we've put a lot of effort in. We've had to certainly do a lot of fighting to put the stuff that we've put out in the manner that we wanted to put it out. I mean, right from the start, I mean. In terms of business, because I talked about the music industry, we've always been trying. To, we've always tried to be independent of other people, so that they can't influence us in the uh, music that's put out. And we've never had an A and R person ever. We've always said, "Here's the next album. Here's the next single." They don't even hear it until it goes to mastering stage, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, which, which is the way that we like to do. It. Other people need the other. Um, the the, uh, the checks and balances that that a large uh, label can bring, we've always gone against that with a view to having the freedom that we want to do, and I think we've used that freedom. The Bubbly Cora is a great example of that freedom that that it was a totally different thing, um, which we put a lot of effort and time into. Um, so if it did come round for us again, uh, and I do feel that uh, certainly it has uh, it has got better. Um, I've, well, I think the last, skipping forward to the last album, uh, the last album did so well that uh, we were shocked. Um, it's it really sort of uh, hit, hit home with a, a lot of people and a lot of people that, that used to know us and certainly a lot of people that, that didn't want to know us. And, and that's in itself has sent uh, a wave back to the back catalogue and people, because I, I don't think we just put stuff out. I think we've put out stuff that makes a great story. Yeah. It's not just one album to another. It's the development of a group. The fact that we do our, our I've always done the production. The fact that we've always had a, a hand in um, the artwork and knowing who we want to do the artwork or what ideas that we want or uh, who who we need to just leave to get the artwork done because we trust them. Same with the videos to some certain extent. Um, and it's and we started from 
absolutely nothing to, from an absolute bedroom to moving into a small uh, home studio to to the studio in Preston to bigger studios in London and so nothing has really stayed still for us we've always had to uh, had to change and develop and we think that's just as interesting as as the albums have been as well so um, we always see our, our, our careers as, as, as a story what's yeah. next for you guys um, well things are quite slow for us in England at the moment um, even though a lot of people seem to think that uh, the Covid thing is over well, our government has vowed in their wisdom to not go into another lockdown. Yeah. Um, but that's what they've done all the time. They've always gone into a lockdown late if they've ever gone into it. Um, it's 29 times worse than it was a year ago, yet people seem to fit, um, think that it's all over, um, which, uh, which is quite worrying. Yeah. yeah. And then that's... we've got Brexit here as well. Yeah. For us, Brexit is everything that we ever sung about. We we grew up, Wolverhampton was a place which had, I'm sure you've probably um, had articles on it, but Enoch Powell was the um, was a very right-wing anti-immigration Minister of Parliament and he was born in, he, he was in a constituency in Wolverhampton. He'd served some time in India, actually, um, and he was a complete bastard. And the... That we grew up in the shadow of Enoch Powell. Yeah. And that was the first anti-immigration wave for us. And the second one is, is Brexit. And uh, we see it exactly the same as having Enoch Powell there. Um, it's a very... Uh, it's kind of a full circle for you. You're making music in a, you know, post-Brexit, making music is kind of making music back in the day. Well, yeah, we've, we've reached 12 o'clock again. We're at the top of the clock again. Unfortunately, it's not a clock that we want to want to want to be on. But uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. I think uh, we're out of time, and uh, I don't think I have anything else to ask. Would you like to add anything? Um. Well, I think we've sort of skipped through some areas and maybe dealt too heavily on some others. But uh, no, everything everything's we we've got. Uh, a website which is info which is cornershop.com uh, and um, if anyone wanted to uh, to um, see what we do that would be nice if they could visit us there uh, other than that no thank you so much for for doing this it's just an honor to have you here it's probably like a milestone for my my podcast career uh, oh, I'm going to brag about this you. to everybody, but this is just so amazing. Very good of you. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you for that. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.